Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast, where we are reading through Francis Parkman's France and England in North America. And we are beginning the fourth volume of this uh, book, uh, which is entitled The Old Regime in Canada. And this one, um, well, like the first volume dealt with early exploration some of the early settlements in in France, a very narrative-driven book. The second one dealt with the Jesuit missions. Again, a very narrative, a very epic tale of the the, the rise and, and tragedy of the Huron mission, the Iroquois Wars. The third volume is more of a of close look at one explorer and some of the other explorers who were involved in, in establishing French claims in the Great Lakes and the Mississippi. That book was LaSalle in the Great West, and that is uh, like a larger-than-life figure. That's a, that's a biography almost of a larger-than-life figure who's involved in these really, really ambitious goals of establishing a French empire uh, in the broader North America. <clears throat> and then in volume four, uh, which is set basically roughly at the same time that volume three is set, um, deal, it's called The Old Regime in Canada, and it deals with the social and political realities of French Canada. And it's very, very key to Parkman's overall argument, because as I've said many times in this series so far, Parkman's main argument is that the, the failure of French Canada, the failure of French Empire in the New World, I should say, not French Canada so much, but the, the goal of French Empire, eventually defeated by the British, uh, has its root the root cancer there was was absolutism monarchy and and the, and the pope right so these are ultimately questions of political culture and questions of 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 how power is arranged and it takes them to volume 3 to kind of get there but it also makes sense because it's not until then that you really have these established political institutions taking root in Canada and you can get a clear picture of what French Canada will be over the course of the 18th century, right? Which, of course, is the last three volumes of the book cover more in depth the 18th century, especially the last two. Um, volume five actually, you know, looks at some of the military history of, 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 of French Canada in the same time as this. So this, not, this, not novel, this book, The Old Regime in Canada, it really is kind of a social and political history. And it's quite a good one, I think. I, I, it's not my favorite. My favorite still is volume two, The Jesuits, just for its, its epicness. But this is a pretty solid kind of uh, examination of, of a political culture. And I, I think it, it holds up maybe a little bit more than some of the other ones. And I think since he's not quite so narrative driven in this book, he, he is able to you hear more of his voice. And I, I, I like that, too. And, I mean, his, he is a good narrative writer and he's good at telling stories, but sometimes I just like when historians kind of put things together. Maybe I'm kind of stupid that way. I, I, I like to have it kind of laid out a little bit more systematically. Maybe it's because of my training or the generation of, of history that I come out of reading. 
But anyways, um, this book is in three parts. Um, the first part is almost like you kind of scratch your head when you read it the first time and you're like, why is he wasting three chapters, like 50 pages, on Acadia? Like, why do we care about the Acadian Civil War? It's something that you probably never even heard of unless you're like f from there, um, you know, from Eastern Canada. Maybe you heard of this. Uh, very few people, I think, in the U.S. know anything about the Acadian Civil War. Maybe they've heard of the French or the British taking over Acadia and the expulsion of the French from the, from the region and, and the connection with Louisiana and all that. Maybe, maybe, probably not even that. Uh, but certainly the Acadian Civil War, it seems like such a, a stupid thing. Two French people fighting over claims, you know, who, who will dominate Acadia. Um, but I think the reason why he needs to talk about this is key in the title, the feudal chiefs of Acadia. So, you know, we kind of get in this book a transition from the feudal to the, the monarchical to the, to the absolutist. Right. And it's kind of the same shift that's going on in France in the early modern period from from a feudal age. Think of the Hundred Years War, that period where it's still relatively feudal, where the powers in the nobility to the strength of the monarchy in the early in the in the maybe during the civil wars in France. You see the rise of the monarchy a little bit before 200 people like Francis the first. But you start to see the centralization of power under the monarchy, the limiting of the power of the aristocrats. But you're still in a feudal culture. And then, of course, Louis XIV, I am the state. You got the, the emergence of, of absolutism, right? And that transition is what he's trying to tell here. So by looking at what others seems like a stupid little side note, a footnote in North American history, the Civil War in Acadia, he's actually trying to get at something about this kind of the, the, the endurance of feudalism in 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 the americas under the french so that's just three chapters uh, and then um so i'll talk about that in this episode a little bit more then we get a, a section called the canada a mission which is a really also a good title actually for it. canada a mission um canada a mission see i don't know it's, it's canada a mission so this is about the the jesuits again and it deals with the, the Jesuits, not in the, with the Indians so much, although there's a little bit here about the Indians. The Jesuits trying to establish a mission in Onondaga. Um, but largely this is about Laval, Bishop Laval, who was the head bishop for, for much of the later 17th century in, in New France and his relationship with the different political leaders. Right. So um, the, the idea that, you know, the, the, papacy, the power of the papacy over French colonial society and its contention with the political leadership is, of course, going to be key to our story, especially because that was something Louis XIV was fighting for back in France is the establishment of, of monarchical power over the clergy. Right. The Gallic Church, as it was called, the effort to create a a church under the French monarchy, right? Where the bishops, the priests could be appointed by the, by the, by the king, not by the Pope, right? Very, very important for French history. And it's something that is one of the achievements of French absolutism was the establishment of this Gallic church. And you also have here the Janicet, the, the, the Jansenet heresy. 
and how it was flourishing in the Americas and how this led to tensions with the Jesuits. Um, the Jansenites is, you know, I don't know that much about it. it. My understanding and the way kind of Parkman describes it here is it's, it's kind of a Protestant-esque heresy within Catholicism. So let's jump to Wikipedia here. Okay, here's uh, what Wikipedia says. Jansenism was a theological movement primarily in France that emphasized original sin, human depravity, and the necessity of divine grace and predestination. So it's kind of, it's, it's got some Calvinist ideas in here. Predestination, human depravity, uh, the emphasis on sin. Obviously this stuff is in the Roman Catholic Church too, but it's something that really the, the, the Calvinists are most known for, yeah. Now, they get called the Jansenists as kind of a pejorative by the Jesuits. And the Jesuits really accuse them essentially of being Calvinists. And so that's the, that's the tension between them. Uh, their theology. Um, even before the publication by Augustinius, uh, well, this, I'll skip that. Um, Jansen, that's the guy's name. Jansen just insisted on justification by faith. All he did not contest the necessity of revering saints, confession, and frequent communion. Jansen's opponents condemned his teachings for their alleged similarities to Calvinism. Blaise Pascal's Acrit sur la Gras attempted to conciliate the contradictory positions. Yeah, that's right. So Pascal, he 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 played a role in this Jansenite controversy and heresy. Um, denying free will. So that's key here. Denying free will. That's another Calvinist thing. But it seems institutionally the Jansenites supported the Catholic Church, you know, the seven sacraments and, and all that, but they had these these different ideas. So um, that that kind of breaks out in, in this. So the section in this book called Canada Mission explores the 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 you know Bishop Laval, um, very very important figure. He he actually several chapters just called Laval and Art, you know Laval and so and so Laval Laval and so and so. They're just different governors who come and go. So he's kind of a omnipresent person in in New France. While these different governors and people come and go. Um, so a little bit about the Indians, a little bit about the Jesuits and the Jansenites, and then a lot about Laval, right? And this tension between the church and the political leadership is key because as the monarchy gets stronger, they're going to have this conflict with the church. And, you know, part of that is this kind of keeping, keeping Rome out of the French church. And part of it is also, you know, dealing with these kind of heresies like the Jansenites. And Laval is going to be kind of key in that negotiation of that relationship. So that's uh, the first two parts. The third part is called The Colony and the King. And this is, Parkman says, where the title of the whole book comes from, The Old Regime in Canada. And what this tells us is, is the social history of Canada more generally. It covers the period from 1661 to, to really 1763. Um, and we see it basically a transition from paternalism, like feudalism, to paternalism, to, to absolutism. Right. And in the intermixed in that, we get conversations about trade, about the family, about women in New France, um, about the, the, this, the nature of, of aristocracy in New France. 
and all these. And it's a really, really good section that I think lays out a clear argument of this transition towards absolutism and how absolutism begins to reign in America, for New France anyways. You know, and, and that gets to kind of his overall argument here, which is, you know, liberty, freedom will somehow reign in British North America. We're not quite sure how it gets there because he never really gets around to explaining it. I don't even think in the other volumes he gets around to explaining it. In fact, the way New England is presented here is as the opposite of liberty, almost as bad as the Jesuits in a lot of ways. But anyways, that's his big argument, right? That, that kind of France got kind of sucked into this dead end of absolutism and, and papacy and, and, the, and the church. And that becomes a kind of a dead end for building a colonial empire. But a lot of the foundation of his argument does rest in these chapters. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the three parts of this book. And for this episode, I'm going to focus on the Acadia stuff and talk a little bit about what he says about, because the Acadia stuff's really short. So that'll give me time to go jump into a little bit on the, on the church stuff, um, the Rome and the Jesuit, uh, in Canada. Um, so I quoted this last time. Uh, he starts out this book saying, The physiognomy of government, says de Tocqueville, can best be judged in its colonies, for there its characteristic traits usually appear larger and more distinct. When I wish to judge the spirit and the fault of the administration of Louis XIV, I must go to Canada. Its deformity is there seen through a microscope. The monarchical administration of France at its height of its power and at the moment of its supreme triumph stretched an arm across the Atlantic and grasped the North American continent. This volume attempts to show by what methods it strove to make good its hold, why it achieved a certain kind of success and why it failed at last. The political system which had fallen and the antagonistic system which has prevailed seem at first sight to offer nothing but contrasts. Yet out of the tomb of Canadian absolutism come voices not without suggestion even to us. Extremes meet and autocracy and democracy often touch hands, at least in their vices. That's kind of interesting, at least in their vices. They come together. Uh, what are those vices? I'm not even sure um, what they are. I, if he tells us, I, I kind of miss that section. But um, that's in the introduction to the book. And then he talks a little bit about sources. We don't really care about that. Uh, oh, by the way, about the book. Um, originally published in 1874, revised and rewritten in 1893. So we have the 1893 edition. So we're always getting the revised edition. In, this, in the Library of America version of the, these books. Okay. Acadia. First three chapters of this book deal with, with Acadia. Last time we met Acadia, the French left. Like the French had left Acadia, but they come back. They, can, they come back um, at some point. I think the date is given somewhere, but Parker's not really interested in that story. I think it's 1632, maybe. Oh, no, 1632 is when the Scot the Scottish colony gets placed there. Acadia was restored to France sometime after that. Um, yeah, around 1634 to 1635, we get the, the reestablishment of the French in Acadia, where they would rule until 1710, when the British finally take over Acadia and eventually kick out the... Uh, the, the French. So um, we care about two people here. Douane, D-A-U-N-A-Y, and Latour. 
these were the two people who both had claims to Acadia from the king. So Wikipedia actually tells us that Latour was a Protestant and Dolnay was a Catholic. And Parkman seems to be a little bit more ambiguous about Latour's Protestantism. His wife seems to have been a Protestant, but um, I don't know. He just seems it just he does. It seems that he converts at some point, but Wikipedia talks about him more as a straight up Protestant. Um, so uh, what Wikipedia says about this is the Acadian Civil War, 1635 to 1654, was fought between competing governors of the French Protestant of Acadia. Governor Charles de Saint-Étienne de la Tour, a Protestant, had been granted one area of territory by King Louis XIV, and Charles de Monod Dolnay, a Catholic, had been granted another area. The divisions made the king, made by the king were geographically uninformed, and the two territories and their administrative centers overlapped. The conflict was intensified by personal animosity between the two governors and came to an end when Dolnay successfully expelled the tour from his holdings. Dolnay's success was effectively overturned after his death when Latour married Dolnay's uh, widow. All right, so that's the story. In fact, uh, the chapters here are first Dolno, Del, Latour and, and Dolnay. Chapter two, Latour and the Puritans, which is interesting. And then the victor vanquished, which kind of is alluded to there, right? It's The victor's vanquished in two ways. One is, yes, Latour family ends up victorious, uh, kind of through political machinations. And ultimately, even that victor is overturned by the English, and, and eventually the English conquer Acadia in 1710. Um, so, yeah, um, the first chapter here, Latour and Dolnay, just go through the these characters, their claims, and laying the foundation of the Acadian um, Civil War and some of their different fighting. Now, these don't seem to be huge battles. Um, you know, kind of frontier skirmishes only, but there's a series of, of, of sieges and, and battles um, throughout the 1640s, you know, over, you know, seeing who would dominate Acadia, especially all, they kind of all comes to a head in 1643 um, to 45. Now, the broader politics of the Acadian Civil War, as described here by Parkman, rest in the fact that Latour... He, he has the sympathies for Protestantism, but he's also willing to give the Puritans in New England certain fishing rights, certain trading rights, things that they want or maybe want in Acadia, right? Which is something Dolnay is not willing to grant them. So he has more sympathy among the Puritans for his cause. So in 1643, under this threat in, in failure, he decides to go to Boston. And he arrives there, I think it's in 1645, um, going there, basically trying to get get help um, for his cause. Now, this gives Parkman a chance to do something I've been kind of hoping he would do a little bit more systematically, and that is finally talk about British North America. You know, because he wants to do this big contrast, but he never actually gets around to talking about British North America to any significant degree. So finally, we get it in this chapter, Latour and the Puritans. And he doesn't have very many nice things to say about them. Um, so this is 1643. So this is literally, you know, plus like 20 years after the establishment of Boston. I mean, it's still pretty early in the history of Puritan New England. Now, of course, most of the migration happened in that first decade or two after 
the founding of Boston. So, um, you know, but it, it was still an early colony, still struggling to get started. Um, and Parkman has some words to say about the nature of Boston. Um, quote, worse than wolves, rattlesnakes, and Indians together were the theological quarrels that threatened to kill the colony in its infancy. Children are taught that the Puritans came to New England in search of religious liberty. The liberty they sought was for themselves alone. It was liberty to worship in their own way and to prevent all others from doing the like. They imagined that they held a monopoly of religious truth. And they were bound and conscious to defend it against all comers. Their mission was to build up in Western Canaan, ruled by the law of God, and keep it pure from error. And if need were, purge it of heresy by persecution, to which ends they set up one of the most detestable theocracies on record. Church and state were joined in one. Church members alone had the right to vote. There was no choice but to remain politically a cipher or embrace or pretend to embrace the extreme dogmas of Calvin. And then he talks about uh, Anne Hutchinson. So at this point, you know, for all this talk about North America being the domain of liberty, you know, we don't see much evidence of it yet anyways. Um, but... Um, Latour, the story is, Latour goes to Boston trying to get support, and he, he's welcomed and all this. And back at his main fort, which is uh, Fort of St. John, where Latour left his wife in charge of the fort, and Dulney attacks at that point. And, you know, she finally is forced to surrender to to Dolney because of overwhelming force. She dies in, in 1645, uh, in basically in jail after being forced to watch the executions of, of, of the men who, who surrendered. So a pretty heroic or uh, horrifying final few days of, of her life. But her death is, as we learn in chapter three, eventually provides kind of the, the loophole for the tour to finally get to become the the, van, the victorious vanquished, as as Parkman puts it. So uh, Latour survives all this, but even though he's pushed out of power, and he becomes like a fur trader for a time, and he does different things, but he eventually goes back to France and gets his name rehabilitated and returns to Acadia and marries uh, Jean Motin, who is the wife, or was the wife, of, of Dolmay. And this kind of helps create a political alliance, which kind of puts an end to this political squabbling in, in Acadia. So what to make of all this? I mean, it's not something Parkman writes out and sketches out for us directly. Um, now, one thing you could say is, well, Parkman's done this before. He's kind of shoved stories that he thinks are important, but aren't really, are kind of marginal into other volumes, like he did with uh, in the LaSalle book, he, he, he shoved in the Hennepin story about the, the Minnesota, exploration of Minnesota, or he shoved in the Huguenot story in Florida in the first volume. You know, yeah, he, he does that, or the story of Mont the founding of Montreal in the Jesuit book. Sure, he does that, but I, I want to think he always has a good reason for doing those things and, and putting them where he does. And I think in this case, he, he does as well. Because we are really talking here about something that's almost in the feudal age. A kind of a squabble over over these kind of royal grants, uh, marriage alliances being key, uh, you know, this kind of politics of personal loyalty. All these things seem kind of medieval. 
right? And he does call this section the feudal chiefs of Acadia, where he's sort of arguing, yeah, these are essentially feudal. It's a it's feudalism after after a fashion, right? And and that's kind of the nature of of France and of, of French America. So I think something that Parkman's getting at here, and maybe I'm not fully right about this, but I think he wants to say like for the British, British North America was different. It somehow evolved into something new, different from England, different from Britain. In, the, in France, it couldn't do that. In France, it kind of remained like the old world. Uh, maybe a bit out of time, maybe time was a bit out of joint, you know, as you kind of still have feudal squabbles in Acadia when when you have Louis the Fourteenth on the throne in, in France, the age of absolutism. It's a bit out of joint, maybe, but you still basically have reflections of France in in the New World. Unlike the British, who somehow are doing something new. Right. And and I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I think that's a complicated question. Um, but anyways. That's a really, really interesting section. And I learned a lot. I, I must have skipped it the first time I read this or just skimmed over it because I did not remember anything of the story of, of the Cadian Civil War. Anyways. Se next part, Canada, a mission. Um, this is chapters 4 through... Chapters 4 through 12 of, of the whole book. So... It's about 100 pages of the entire book, so I'll just kind of cover the first few chapters of it, and then I'll, I'll pick up next time, especially with the story of Laval. Um, yeah, I'm already at 26 minutes, so maybe I'll just say a few things setting this up, and I'll focus the next episode on this whole section of Canada mission. Uh, so, like I said in the introduction, you'll be kind of dealing with uh, the Jesuits, Maybe I'll, I'll talk about the Jesuits among the Onondaga briefly, and then that will allow me to pick up really with the story of Laval and the Jansenites and, and that whole thing. Um, all right, so the Jesuits at Onondaga. Um, chapter four here, uh, Jesuits at Onondaga, is kind of the epilogue in some ways to volume two. In fact, it picks up right where volume two ends with uh, like 1650. This one's 1653 to 1658. And this just talks about the effort of the Jesuits to establish a new mission, this time among the Onondaga. Uh, so kind of going to the Iroquois, attempting to find a kind of having a hope, right? And obviously this was seen as dangerous. This was seen as risky because it was the Iroquois who destroyed the Huron and, and, and had kind of cause chaos to this whole region, causes refugee crisis that I talked about in a previous episode, caused all this unrest. But there was hope that this could help solidify kind of an alliance with the French between the, the Iroquois and the French, stabilize things and, and kind of give new life to this goal of, of doing sort of what the Spanish did. I, I, I think there was this Although Parkman doesn't say it directly, I get the sense there's kind of this dream of, of what the Spanish did in the in the Americas, which was you conquer them, but then you convert the people and create your Catholic foundation 
among the population, right? And then, you, of course, you have intermarriage and families being established and all that. But you create your, your kind of church, foundation of your church on the local population, not importing the way the Puritans or the English did. But really seen as risky. Parkman writes, here was a dilemma. Was, it, was not this, like the Mohawk invitation to the Hurons, an invitation to butchery? On the other hand, to refuse would probably rekindle the war afresh. The Jesuits had long nursed the project, the, a project bold to temerity. The great Huron mission was ruined, but might not another be built up among the authors of its ruin? And the Iroquois themselves, tamed by the power of the French, or the power of the faith, be annexed to the kingdoms of heaven and of France? Thus would peace be restored to Canada, a barrier of fire opposed to the Dutch and English heretics, and the power of the Jesuits vastly increased. Yet the time was hardly right for such an attempt. Before thrusting a head into the tiger's jaw, it would be well to try to effect a thrusting in a hand. They resolved to compromise with the danger, and before risking a colony in Onondaga, to send thither an envoy who could sue the Indians, confirm them in Pacific designs, and pave the way for a more decisive step. The choice fell on Father Simone Lemoyne. Um, so um, that's the goal here of the of the mission. Now this is a long narrative chapter, but essentially there's there's mixed success here with the, the with Lemoyne's mission among the the Iroquois. He he cut he makes several trips there over the course of 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 like a ten years almost. Um, this chapter only goes up to fifty eight, but in f later chapters we we hear a little bit about Lemoyne's continued. Um, voyages uh, to the Iroquois and, and his different kind of political negotiations with them. Um, so, you know, mixed success. Not obviously the Iroquois are not converted, but there is some some success, and it kind of creates a little bit of new life for the Jesuits in the aftermath of the destruction of the Huron mission. So, yeah, I think I'm going to stop for now. Um, and basically, I'll, I'll say a little bit about the Jans in it controversy next time. Um, and then get into Laval. And, and, that, and then in the final episode, I'll focus on the third and final part section of the book. So I'm kind of breaking this up a little bit differently than I normally do, not just strict 100 pages, because this is in three parts. So, yeah, I guess the big story here for this episode is the Acadian Civil War and the overall picture of this, this volume. It's one I, I really do quite like. So um, that's going to be it for now. So if you have your own thoughts or questions about this book, this part of the book, uh, or the overall France and England in North America, let me know. I will try to get back to you. I, I love hearing from you. Um, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So um, that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time with part two of Old Regime in Canada, where I'll look at the at Bishop Laval and the Jansenites, Jesuits, and other religious topics in the 17th century.